If you have a Bible, if you could please turn to the book of Acts. We are in Acts chapter 19. We're continuing our series, The Acts of Jesus, part two. And this week we are looking at Occupy Ephesus. We'll be looking at a riot that occurred in the city of Ephesus and what happens when there's a riot in our own hearts when God shows up. So uh, we are looking again, this is chapter 19, starting at verse 23. The verses are on the screen. This is the word of God. About that time, there arose a great disturbance about the way. A silversmith named Demetrius, who made silver shrines of Artemis, brought in a lot of business for the craftsmen there. He called them together along with the workers in related trades and said, you know, my friends, that we receive a good income from this business. And you see in here how this fellow Paul has convinced and led astray large numbers of people here in Ephesus and in practically the whole province of Asia. He says the gods made by human hands are no gods at all. There is danger not only that our trade will lose its good name, but also that the temple of the great goddess Artemis will be discredited and the goddess herself, who is worshipped throughout the whole province of Asia and the world, will be robbed of her divine majesty." When they heard this, they were furious and began shouting, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians! Soon the whole city was in an uproar. The people seized Gaius and Aristarchus, Paul's traveling companions from Macedonia, and all of them rushed into the theater together. Paul wanted to appear before the crowd, but the disciples would not let him. Even some of the officials of the province, friends of Paul, sent him a message begging him not to venture into the theater. The assembly was in confusion. Some were shouting one thing, some another. Most of the people did not even know why they were there. The Jews in the crowd pushed Alexander to the front and they shouted instructions to him. He motioned for silence in order to make a defense before the people. But when they realized he was a Jew, they, shouted, they all shouted in unison for about two hours, great as Artemis of the Ephesians. The city clerk quieted the crowd and said, fellow Ephesians, Doesn't all the world know that the city of Ephesus is the guardian of the temple of the great Artemis and of her image, which fell from heaven? Therefore, since these facts are undeniable, you ought to calm down and not do anything rash. You have brought these men here, though they have neither robbed temples nor blasphemed our goddess. If then Demetrius and his fellow craftsmen have a grievance against anybody, the courts are open and there are proconsuls. They can press charges." If there is anything further you want to bring up, it must be settled in a legal assembly. As it is, we are in danger of being charged with rioting because of what has happened today. In that case, we would not be able to account for this commotion since there is no reason for it. After he said that, he dismissed the assembly. Let's go to God in a word of prayer. Father, we we cry out to you that you would reign without a rival in our hearts, that nothing else would be in the center of our lives but you alone. Would you speak to us this morning through your living and active word, through the power of the Holy Spirit, that it would fill this place and that you would change us for your glory. Apart from you, we can do nothing, but within you, Lord, all things are possible. And so, Lord, we come to you in faith. We come to you looking for the power of the Holy Spirit to transform our hearts and our lives. And we pray this prayer in Jesus' name. Amen. Just two points this morning from our text. Riot on the outside, the theater in Ephesus, 
and riot on the inside when grace comes to town. First of all, we're going to look at a riot on the outside, the theater in Ephesus. First, some words about the religious lives of the Ephesians. Uh, The Ephesians um, in the town of Ephesus was the temple of Artemis. And if you know a little history, you know that there was an ancient seven wonders of the world. I believe there's a, a current seven wonders of the world. And the temple of Artemis in Ephesus was one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. Ephesus in what is, is in what is now modern-day Turkey. And if you go to where the site of where Ephesus was, you can actually see they have rebuilt the temple as best they could to scale and all that uh, to try to uh, show what the temple would have looked like. And... Um, In that temple, there was a meteorite that they worshipped. And we have a quote here uh, on the screen. It says, the epicenter of Artemis worship was a black meteorite. And and you can see the the city clerk actually references that in our text. He says, it fell from heaven, that either resembled or had been fashioned into a grotesque image of a woman. The lower part was wrapped like a mummy. The idol was covered with breasts symbolizing fertility. You see, Artemis was the goddess of fertility um, for this part of Asia, and, and Artemis was a very significant god in the pantheon of gods. And so um, this is central to who the Ephesians are. And we also have an image up on our screen and, and, uh, of what the theater in Ephesus would have looked like. This was also a, a really amazing thing. I know that it may not look uh, like much to us, But to have a theater with a capacity of 25,000 people in the ancient world was a remarkable feat. And so here, this is the actual theater in what is now modern-day Turkey, where Gaius and Aristarchus would have been dragged in front of all these rioting Ephesians uh, to answer for uh, this message of the gospel, which was starting to stir things up in Ephesus. What our text tells us is a prominent silversmith named Demetrius became upset over Paul's preaching of the gospel, so he starts a riot. And um, I have decided to give us uh, all some directions on how to stage a first-class riot in case you are ever in a situation where you may need to do this. Um, The first step in in, in staging a first-class riot is you need to offend people. You need to get a group of people deeply offended about something. We see this in verses 25 to 27, Demetrius the silversmith. Um, He's upset because he he sees his vocation, his work, is threatened. Second is location. You got to have a good location. Occupy a central place in the city. Again, there was no better place to go than than the theater in Ephesus. Uh, Again, held 25,000 people. And there was also a yearly festival of worship to the goddess Artemis that would happen once a year. And many scholars think that that festival was probably going on when this event occurred because there's Um, all of these worshipers of this goddess who have come to Ephesus. It was a destination city if you were going to worship Artemis. Second, you need a good location. Third, confuse everybody. And ideally, in any good riot, you want people who are there who don't even know why they they are there, right? They're just there, and you you know how it goes, especially when there's, you know, maybe some young guys who are like, hey, what are you doing today? I don't know. You want to go riot? Sure, let's do it. And they walk down there, you know, there's probably going to be some pretty girls there. Let's go and let's ride. And, um, and, and so that's what you have going on here. You, hopefully you, you caught the humor in Luke's description here when he says, most of the people did not even know why they were there. They're just, hey, let's riot. Let's do this. Chaos. That's the third ingredient to a good riot. And the fourth one is determination. Shout the same thing over and over again for hours and hours. 
And uh, can you imagine shouting? I mean, can you imagine doing this modern day if, if, we, if you went to a riot and, and you said, great are the jets of East Rutherford. Great are the jets of East Rutherford. Great are the de- I'm going to stop. Don't worry. But <laughs> imagine if I did it for two hours. And uh, so a healthy, a healthy dose of, of determination is always a good part of a riot. What led the Ephesians to to riot, to go to this level of extreme where they would all, so many of them would gather, so many of them would be upset. Well, the outward reasons are obvious. We see them in our text. Demetrius, this silversmith, says that Paul's message is a threat to the religious and economic lives of the Ephesians. But here's what we have to know. What was really going on was the the gospel was a threat to the very identity of the Ephesians. And whenever the gospel comes into a culture, and, and we'll see that you'll see this on our screen as well, the gospel will always offend some parts of the dominant culture in which we live. That was true in Ephesus at the time Paul was living, and that is true today in modern day America. When the true gospel is preached, we should expect that it will offend some parts of the dominant culture. We should expect that it will offend the status quo. Now, for the Ephesians, what was their identity? Their identity was, was uh, first of all, for Demetrius and his crew, it was about money and the money that they made. And I'm sure that uh, helped their economy in all sorts of ways when travelers would come to worship. But it was also their identity that they were the place that people went to worship Artemis. And they were proud of it. Imagine if New York City, imagine if for some reason the, uh, the financial district of New York City, all the banking and the New York Stock Exchange, for some reason left New York City and went to Topeka, Kansas, all right? So now you had the Topeka Stock Exchange, and, 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 and downtown it was no longer this vibrant place um, with the world trade and everything, but it was just empty buildings. I think a lot of New Yorkers would, would, would be concerned. They would be worried. They would say, this is, this is part of our identity as a city. This, we're proud of this. And so the gospel comes in, and it's a threat to the people of Ephesus. They're worried. And there will always be pressure. Let me tell us this. There will always be pressure to conform the gospel to the world around us, to keep the status quo, even when the gospel should be challenging the status quo, and domesticate Jesus. Let me give a historical example. In the American South, in the 19th century, um, of course, there was the institution of slavery. And despite the fact that the New Testament consistently undermines slavery, I hope we all know that, the New Testament undermines slavery. So when Paul is writing to Philemon, he says to Philemon, and he's writing about Philemon's runaway slave, Onesimus, who's runaway, he says, Philemon, Onesimus is your brother. He says, you're, he says he's your equal in Christ. You should treat him like a brother. That was a radical statement to, stay, to say in that time period. And Paul's saying, Philemon, Onesimus, this slave is your brother. The New Testament consistently undermines the institution of slavery. Paul says, if you can gain your freedom, you should do it. And yet, in the 19th century in the American South, there was many, many people who justified slavery from the Bible. And they said, no, actually, um, no, actually the Bible supports slavery, and we should keep slavery, and it's good for everyone. What had happened? the gospel, the true message of Christ had, had been co-opted to fit the status quo instead of coming in and challenging the very heart of a culture, of a society. 
The gospel always challenges the dominant idols in our culture. You know, in our, in our culture today, if you talk about Jesus and you talk about the gospel and how, and how the gospel helps us to be nice people and loving people, there's very little resistance. But when the gospel challenges racism or sexism or the, the modern-day pluralism that says there's no right or wrong, there's no absolutes, tolerance, the rights of the unborn, then there's chaos because the gospel has now hit an artery of the culture. The gospel challenges the dominant culture. It challenges the status quo because within any culture, there's going to be sinful elements that are, that are dominant features. I want to talk about, um, for just a moment, what this looks like when the gospel comes in and transforms an institution. Um, some of you may not know this, but our church, Grace Redeemer Church, is a part of the Presbyterian Church in America, PCA. That's our denomination. And uh, I was at General Assembly last year with my family. General Assembly is the gathering of all the pastors from the PCA from all over the country. Typically, there's somewhere between 1,500 to 2,000 pastors and elders. We're all at a convention center. We're coming from all over the U.S. And there was an overture, which is just sort of uh, our political speak to mean like a bill that we pass for our, for our denomination. And it was overture about repenting for past sins of racism that had been present in the PCA. And it was really a powerful thing. Um, the, this bill was presented, and um, actually men who are, who are, you know, could be my grandfather, who are 70, 80 years old, were coming to the microphone and were, were weeping. And were saying, you know what, I actually was around when the civil rights era happened, and I, and I was pastoring a church, and I didn't do anything about it. And I didn't stand up for it, and that was wrong. And I need to repent of that. And um, it, was, it was a really powerful time. And what actually happened was the bill was not passed because instead the, the General Assembly said, we want, we want to go to our African-American brothers and get their feedback as well because we want this bill to be as powerful as it can. And this bill, what I'm about to put a quote up on the screen, is going to pass in Mobile this June. The General Assembly of the PCA does recognize and confess our church's covenantal and generational involvement in and complicity with racial injustice inside and outside of our churches during the civil rights period. And this General Assembly also confesses our continued sins of racism and failure to love our brothers and sisters from minority cultures in accordance with what the gospel requires. I hope that will encourage all of us that, that that's, what, that's what the gospel, that's what the Holy Spirit is doing on a denominational level for the PCA to say... Um, this is what happens when the gospel comes in. It changes us. It challenges us. Uh, and, and it's never going to, there's always going to be resistance. There's going to be a riot on the outside because the gospel is going to call the culture to repent of certain things. But equally so, when the gospel comes to your life or to my life, there's a riot on the inside. There's a riot on the inside when grace comes to town. I don't know, um, those of you who are Downton Abbey fans, the TV show, or any of you want to raise your hand? So, some of you are kind of like, I don't, I don't know if I can raise my hand. I'm not sure if that's okay, but it's okay. Um, I understand this is the last season of Downton Abbey. It's kind of been a phenomenon. My wife is a big fan. Um, and, uh, you know, there is, uh, you know, basically the setting for the show is it's England. It's kind of the landed gentry period where you had sort of the, you know, the royal families and they had all these servants and so forth. And uh, the, the show is about a family named the Granthams. And the head butler 
for the Grantham family is a, is a man named Mr. Carson. And the head of the whole estate for Downton Abbey, you know, goes by the phrase, Lord Grantham. Um, I have been hoping for Lord Desh in my home. It's not happening. Um, just kidding. I would never do that. Um, uh, but you have, uh, you have Lord Grantham. Um, I'm going to need to repent of that one later. Uh, uh, you have Lord Grantham and you have, uh, you have Mr. Carson, the butler. And there's this hilarious exchange. I actually walked in one time. Betsy was walking and I heard the exchange and it made me laugh out loud. Uh, Mr. Carson says this to Lord Grantham. He says, he says, we may have to have a maid in the dining room. And Lord Grantham says, cheer up, Carson. There are worse things happening in the world. And Mr. Carson says, not worse than a maid in the dining room with a duke. And, uh, you know, the implication is, this is so scandalous that there would be a maid serving, you know, these royal, uh, you know, this dignitary instead of, I guess, the proper thing would be a footman, uh, you know, the guys. So here's the thing about our faith, brothers and sisters. If the gospel, if the worst scandal that the gospel does in your life or in my life is equivalent of a maid in the dining room, then something's not right. Because the truth is that there is no such thing as genteel, mild, friendly, socially acceptable Christianity. That's a product of the culture. That's not the true, biblical, robust gospel that we see in Acts and all throughout the scriptures. Because when the gospel comes into our own hearts, there will be a riot. Because you want to know why? There's been somebody else sitting on the throne of our hearts, and that's our flesh. And now God says, when he comes in through the transforming power of the gospel, that's the place that I, that's where I belong. I should be in the center of your heart. And our flesh doesn't like that. You see, if, if you say to your flesh, uh, or if our flesh says, oh, Jesus, you, you want to occupy um, the gas station? You want to occupy the corner drugstore? That's fine. But if you put Jesus in the on, on stage in the 25,000-seat amphitheater of your life, there will be a riot. Because that's what happens when the gospel comes in. The gospel is transformation. It's not, well, Jesus will make me a nice person and hopefully I'll become more like, uh, you know, this kind of person I wanted to become. The gospel is death, but only to rise again. Listen to what Paul says. He says, I've been crucified with Christ and I no longer live. The life I live in the body, I will live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Listen to what Paul's saying. That's not a mild, sweet Christianity. That's a death. Paul says, I w- the old me is dead. It's been crucified with Christ on the cross, and now the new me has come alive. I've been resurrected with Christ. The, very, the resurrection that you and I will experience one day with this physical stuff that we're made out of, which God loves because he made it, and one day we're going to have new resurrection bodies, that same resurrection happens in our hearts as we surrender our lives to, in faith to Christ. Listen to this quote by Elton Trueblood. He says this, We must never suggest that discipleship is easy or mild. Everyone who enters, says Jesus, enters violently or not at all. There is no easy Christianity. There is no mild Christianity. It is violent or nothing at all. And it seems extreme, but Jesus says this. Do not suppose that I have come to bring peace to the earth. I have not come to bring peace, but a sword. 
And we can almost imagine, you know, Lady Grantham from Downton Abbey, Downton Abbey saying, but, but Jesus, that sounds so harsh, so unloving. What's all this sword talk about? What uncouth language for a person of your stature. And the truth is that sin is the center of every human heart. And when grace comes to town in your life and in my life, there will be a riot because sin will not go willingly. What king gives up his throne on his own? There will be chaos. Salvation is a head-on collision with with the flesh. When you trust Christ in faith and repentance, it's true. You do receive peace. You do receive purpose. You do receive joy. You do receive a mission for your life which was lacking. All of a sudden, you're no longer just living for your your temporary goals and and trying to build a little kingdom that's going to fade away in in 60 years or something anyway. But all of a sudden, you, you do have this greater purpose. Your life has changed. But it's also true that you now enter into mortal combat with your flesh. Because previously your flesh was on the throne of your life, of my life. And now Jesus has come in and said, that's my throne. And surely we should know that that will involve a battle. Think about this. Everything worthwhile in in life involves pain, sacrifice, and death. You cannot serve two masters, Jesus said. Think about marriage. In, in, in a good, healthy, vibrant marriage. Um, for one thing, when you marry, all other options are now off the table. You have forsaken all other loves. Your love, not just your physical love, but the whole person cannot be given to another person. It belongs to one and only. And, and of course, this is why uh, polygamy is always a train wreck because we can only give ourselves fully to one other person. And it's true with anything in life. Think about becoming a great athlete, a great musician, a great surgeon, a great teacher, a great electrician. It is going to involve sacrifice. It's going to involve commitment. It means dying in a way to other options which were previously available to you. But now you're saying, I will give up those other things in focus and in commitment to this one thing. I was listening to an NPR uh, interview one day on the way home from... uh, in my car, and it was a Terry Gross interview, and she was interviewing Itzhak Perlman. I don't know how many of you know him. He's an Israeli violinist. He's considered maybe the greatest um, violinist living today. And she, was, she asked him about practicing, practicing the violin. And he said, listen, I, he said, I, I practice, my parents made me practice the violin every single day, uh, and I believe he said two to three hours every single day. But he said there was one day a year and it was a holiday. It was a Jewish holiday. I don't remember which one it was. Maybe it was Passover or something like that. But there was one day a year where he remembered that that would be the one day where his parents would not require him to practice the violin. And certainly, we can admire that kind of discipline and commitment. And the question for all of us is, do we care about holiness in that sort of way? Do we, do we recognize that growth in Jesus is a daily dying to self? It's every single day we wake up and we're in the battle. Every single day we need his grace and his help to become more like him. I have two points of application to end today. First of all, this is a battle that we wage every single day. Sin takes no holidays. 
Um, and that's why Sunday morning is not just about, well, I come on Sundays and then the rest of the week I, I just sort of manage on my own and live my life. It's not how it works in the Christian life. Every single day you and I have to die to lust and to greed and to anxiety and to materialism and to anger and to narcissism and to jealousy and to envy and to gossip and to people pleasing and to dishonesty and to wanting people and, and, and we want people to think that we're smart and we're sexy and we're cool and we're successful and we're great parents and all of this stuff. And every day it's a battle to cling to Jesus in faith, to put those things to death. Every day I have to fight to not be so focused on myself and my own personal struggles so that by God's grace I would start to see the needs around me. And the needs around us are so abundant. There are people who sit in the cubicle next to you every single day at work there are, there are neighbors that we've had for years and years and years who are, are lost in life. They're looking for the answers, and we have the answers. We know the answers are in Christ, and yet so often, and I'll say I'm the first one, I settle for some kind of cheesy, um, uh, meaningless conversation, and, and I don't go to the heart nearly as much as, as I could. There are people around us who are desperate, and every day we have to know that we are in a battle. Every moment that the Holy Spirit in our lives takes another inch of enemy territory, there's another death. Because every day we're dying, not literally, of course, we're dying to the flesh, which continues to battle in our hearts. I think there's two poles we tend to operate from. One is this. For some of us, the the problem is there's no riot in our hearts at all. You know, we look at our hearts and we say, look, I don't have any, uh, I don't have any struggles. I, I have peace. But the peace that's in our heart is not the peace of Christ. It's the peace of a, of a standstill, of, of arms have been put down, and there's no, longer, uh, there's no longer any advance against enemy territory. And we need to remember the, the Bible says, the image the Bible gives us is, the, is that the church of God is, is advancing to take over the enemy territory. Remember, the scriptures say the gates of hell will not prevail. In other words, we're going to run over the gates of hell. And for, for each of us in our lives, there are, sometimes there are these areas where maybe it's lust or greed or fear or materialism where that sin is sort of sitting there thinking, man, this is, I've got a nice comfortable place in this heart and there hasn't been a battle that's been raging for a long time. We have to stay on the offensive. For, uh, for others of us, there's discouragement because it can feel like it's a riot all the time. There's always a struggle. And God's call is to... Is to have his peace and his comfort in our lives. It's not to get off the battlefield, but it's to have the right expectations. If you go into a boxing ring and, you know, you expect to have a nice warm cup of tea, the first time you get punched in the face, it's a big shock. So we, we need to have in our Christian life a proper expectation of what we will face in this life and the resources that God has given us to fight these battles. Sin does not take any day off. It's a battle we wage every day. And secondly, God has given us his spirit. This is so important. What's going on in the Christian life is not two equal forces battling for supremacy. Christ has already conquered. He has already uh, defeated all of our enemies. The biggest riot that you or I can ever experience in our lives We've already experienced it by the power of the Spirit when God came into your life and to my life and He changed us. He showed us the reality of our sin. 
He showed us our need for salvation. He woke up our hearts, and through faith and repentance, we trusted in Christ. If Jesus is your Savior, then the, the worst battle has been won. God has given us His Spirit. He is the King. And we have to keep a proper perspective on where we are. And probably the best metaphor I've ever heard for this is about World War II. D-Day occurred on Monday, June 6, 1944. And of course, D-Day was that seminal battle where, where the, the tides of World War II were forever changed. And after D-Day, the direction of the war um, was, was known to all. The Allies were going to win the war. But it wasn't at that moment that there was no more pain, that there was no more fighting, that there was no more death. VE Day, Victory in Europe Day, was not until May 8th, 1945, almost a year later. And in the Christian life, we live between two days. The victory has been won. Christ has accomplished the victory on the cross for us. He has given us his spirit. But VE Day is not here yet. That is the time where we are with Jesus, where we go to be with him or he returns. We live between these two times. And if we know that it's a battle that we're fighting every day and we know that God has provided his spirit as the means to fight this as we come to him, Lord, I can't fight this battle on my own, but you can. You have the strength. Then we're prepared to wage the battle. You know, sometimes when um, I do announcements, I'll be doing an announcement for something I've done many times before. Maybe it's a growth group. Maybe it's Celebrate Recovery. Uh, maybe it's a Bible study. And I'm trying to think of a, of a new way to make the announcement. Um, you know, and, and so, or, or maybe something that will make it interesting. And so I might say something like, you know, hey, come to growth group. You will grow in your faith. You'll meet nice people. And you will eat good food. And uh, as I was preparing this sermon, I thought to myself, what if, uh, what if I just said, Join a growth group because Satan wants to cut your head off and he wants to destroy you and your family. And the food's great too. I mean, you you don't want to leave that part out. Um, We have to realize these things we do, we don't just do them because we're going through the motions just because that's what a Christian does. We go to growth group, and I'm not saying that's the silver bullet for all of our problems, but we go to a growth group, or we go to a Bible study, or we go to uh, Celebrate Recovery, or we go on a church retreat, and certainly we come every Sunday morning because we need this. We need God. We need His presence. We need His power. That's what we need more than anything else. That's why we go to these things, because we know we're in a battle, and we know that He has the grace to carry us through. And He's already won the victory. The victory has already been won. And now we live between the times and we say, Lord, use us as much as we can. Keep taking enemy territory in my life and use me to spread your kingdom more and more every day. Let's end with this. First John 4, 4. Greater is he who is in you than he who is in the world. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We pray that you would continue to stir up our hearts for you. That you would glorify your name through us, through this church. We need you, Lord, and we cry out to you now in Jesus' name. Amen.